Welcome back to a return to Thornfield, a return to Jane Eyre. My name is Morgan. I read the odd chapters and co-host Womance with Isabeau. I'm Isabeau. I read the even chapters. And on our triumphal return, I know you guys have missed us. We have an exciting surprise for you. We have author and fan Rose Lerner here to talk about Jane Eyre and everything and her new book, which is a queer adaptation called The Wife in the Attic, coming out of Audible Originals on February 9th. We're all very excited. Yep, Rose discovered historical romance when she was 12, took her first stabbing at writing one a few years later. Her prose has improved since then, but her fascination with all things Regency hasn't changed. When she's not writing and researching, you can find her reading, watching, cooking, doodling, rambling, and daydreaming in Philadelphia. What a life. Living my best life, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, Rose, congratulations on that lifestyle and on your new book. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So Sarah, I'm fully going to name drop. Sarah Wendell of Smart Bitches Trashy Books put us in touch. And we were so excited when we read about your book because... I mean, this is maybe a spoiler just as a heads up, but like Team Bertha, first of all. (laughs) Absolutely. If the wide Sargasso Sea did not wet your whistle, we're pretty sure (laughs) that this new book will. And hey, you know, there can always be both. (laughs) Unlike in the past when you couldn't get divorced and stuff. It's like you can love all the books. (laughs) Yes, yes. Absolutely. But yes, The Attic... The true villainy of our (laughs) supposed hero. Supposed, but also not supposed. It's a hard relationship with the Rochester TM. Isabel, will you read the about the book for The Wife in the Attic? I was not prepared for that. (laughs) That's how... (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, Here, I've got it. (laughs) I'll just read the back and then I want to read my favorite comment about it. Not prepared, but you have a favorite comment. Obviously, this is how the internet works. Golden Grove's towers and twisted chimneys rose at the very edge of the peaceful weld, a stone's throw from the poisonous marshes and merciless waters of Rye Bay. Young Tabby Palethorpe had been running wild there ever since her mother grew too ill to leave her room. I was the perfect choice to give Tabby a good English education, thoroughly respectable and far too plain to tempt her lonely father, Sir Kit to indiscretion. I knew better than to trust my new employer with the truth about my past, but knowing better couldn't stop me from yearning for impossible things. To be Tabby's mother, Sir Kit's companion, Golden Grove's new mistress, all that belonged to poor lady Palethorpe. Most of all, I burned to finally catch a glimpse of her. Surely she could tell me who had viciously defaced the exquisite guitar in the music room, why all the doors in the house were locked after dark, and whose footsteps I heard in the night. A gothic historical novel and queer Jane Eyre retelling in which the governess falls in love with the wife in the attic and together they wreak fiery vengeance on the tyrannical master of the house. This blurb is speaking my love language. (laughs) Mine too, slow moth. Mine too. Follow slow moth on Goodreads. Awesome. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. So we are so excited because Rose agreed to come on our show and help us talk about the first 15 chapters of Jane Eyre, wherein we meet our heroine and then she saves Rochester's life in fire set in his bedroom. Rose, I do have a craft question. What is your favorite part about writing historical romances and why is it coming up with the character names? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love how you buried the lead there. That was really slick. (laughs) I do love coming up with character names very, very much. When you listen to A Wife in the Attic, you'll notice a theme with the character names of most of the characters. They all have names that derive from Christian stuff. So it's like they're all named like Bishop, Cross, Christy, Christopher, Abbott, etc. Oh my gosh. So this is funny, but Isabel and I were just having a discussion, literally just having a discussion about like, what is the aesthetics of goth? And like, what is the subculture of goth? And what is the text of goth? And why is it all related to St. Sebastian and that depiction of his exquisite torture? Well, St. Sebastian is like specifically gay goth though, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Queer icon. Yeah. So gay goth. Yeah, yeah. All the way. But like, isn't goth like in itself queer, right? Almost. Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Wait, what? Sorry. What was the? And why is it Christianity? (laughs) What was the question? I I think I. That's absolutely no question. That was just a series of exclamations. And then I did up speak at the end to try and get someone to respond. So I would stop. I mean, the thing is that this story is like, I'm just spoiling my own book here right now. But (laughs) the two women are both, one of them is Jewish and one of them is half Jewish. So the, the main character, the governess is half Jewish, but her father was the not, so her name is not Jewish. And so she is not mentioning to her new boss that she's half Jewish because he wants his daughter to have a good English education, right? And so he's a little xenophobic. And so she's like, oh, I'll just keep that on the DL. And uh, you know how it is with a secret? It's like, once you start keeping it, even if it wasn't that big a deal to start with, it becomes bigger and bigger. And also she's moved to like this new place and like her old community isn't. And so the reason that I did that with the character names is that she feels more and more isolated and more and more like the world is like arrayed against her in this way. And like, she's like alone in this like sea of like Mr. Cross and, you know, And so, yeah, agreed that gothics are very queer, though. Yeah. And I think like this theme of Christianity and certainly I think the idea of subverting Christianity is present in the first 15 chapters. Jane, as a young person, seems skeptical or at least her friend Helen Burns, right, is this like perfect martyr. Christ-like. Yes, And Jane herself is both like she admires it deeply, but she also seems to bristle against it, find frustration with it, a bafflement maybe. Yeah, I really like, I mean, we everyone, it's an iconic moment, but when she's like, I must keep in good health and not die, it's like peak young Jane, like so good. It's so good. But like she becomes very religious later. And so I think like, I almost wonder if it's like more about like the strain of Christianity that she is taking a position on that she is opposed to the sort of more like Puritan, like patient suffering strain and is more into this like striving and like, you know, wrestling with your demons kind of like active Victorian 
Christianity as opposed to like, I don't know, does that? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like this activity, it's almost like as we were talking about St. Sebastian, I was thinking about it's more ecstasy, less agony. And like this idea where she finds like God in nature and this like walking forth and striving, which is also one of the moments about Jane where she feels like most at home in the wild. And like, you know, that's where she's finding a spirituality. And the way that the first 15 chapters sort of operate is that the wild spaces also function as like the supernatural and like you know there are guy trashes and fairies and fairy lights and whenever she's like enclosed even with people that she loves it's much more Christian agony and like almost a cutoff of like this feeling of that supernatural that's something that tugs on Jane. I feel like it's gonna get really out there maybe in a second but that's really interesting to me because like the stuff with Helen Burns I can't like find it right away but there's like when she talks about her and Helen Burns spending time together she specifies that they go into the woods and they pick primroses or they sit in primroses or something and I don't know if you knew this but primroses are like a sex flower I had no idea so I'm not really sure why but like you know there's that whole thing like the the primrose path like in Hamlet it's like the primrose path of dalliance and like in old ballads if you mention primroses it's usually like code for sex like there's one where she goes into the garden and she picks primroses until her apron is full of them it's like that like is like pregnancy right like your apron is full and it's like sexual but then it's also this like forest thing and like I'm thinking of like so many stories there's this like trope of like queer love going into the forest to like be safe from like prying eyes like if you think about like as you like it Celia and Rosalind go together right and like they're obviously lesbians and then Verlen I remember I'm still so mad about this in college in my French class we were given this Verlen poem to read Verlen being 19th century French poet who later had a very famous affair with Rambeau another French poet and and in this poem he's talking about if it's addressed to you the lover is addressed as you and there's no gender markers right and then you and I are going to go into the forest to be free and to be safe and to run away from her, you know, and my French teacher was like, you can't talk about how this poem is obviously gay, because that would be bringing in the author's life and the author is dead. And like, also, he hadn't met Rambo yet. It's like, you know, he was like gay before he met Rambo, right? Like he was like a full adult at that time. And like, I still remember like to this day, like, I can't remember if it was like 11 syllables or 13 syllables, but like years later, I read this thing and it was like, this is called like sapphic verse. And like Verlaine specifically used it for his gay poems. And I was just like, I was right. Like, suck it, French professor. Did you write an email to your high school French teacher immediately? Oh, I wish. It was actually a college professor. I don't even remember her name. I don't know if she even works at the school anymore, but I should. And then I feel like, didn't Taylor Swift have some song about how I have places we can hide it's also like the non-gendered you and they're like running and hiding in like nature like I feel like that's just like such a trope yeah the cottage core almost idea that's all around the air I breathe on TikTok yeah it is I love that. Yeah, I never knew that about primroses as symbolism. I think it's also very frustrating for me personally. I talk about this quite often, not bringing the author's personal life into a reading of a text or like some kind of understanding of who they are, especially with Charlotte Bronte. And I want to hear 
from you how this like rumor of her and Thackeray, William Makepeace, I assume was started. And what what's that about? What's that story? I do want to get in that because I'm going to have to talk about a fake rumor about her having an affair with a dude that uh, she probably was queer and had a girlfriend. So I just want to put that out there because it is important to me. But the story about Thackeray is so good. Do we know who her girlfriend was? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was her friend Ellen Nessie. Oh, yeah. If you look at some of their letters, it's like, like, there's this article, and I've, t- I've complained about this before, so, like, sorry if anybody's hearing this for, like, the third time, but there's this article on Out.com, of all the outlets in the world, that's, like, got this quote from her writing to Ellen Nessie, and it's something about, like, Ellen Nessie had put, like, a gift in her, like, suitcase, like, she'd gone to visit her, and then she'd put, like, a surprise gift in her suitcase when she left or something, and she was, like, mock scolding her, and she was, like, you ought to be tenderly whipped and then is tenderly kissed. Just gal pals, you know, just, like, and then, and then this article on Out.com, it's like this is just how like straight women talk to each other in the Victorian era and it's like what is your evidence for that other than that you read a bunch of like lesbian letters and decided they were by straight people or like even at the time like her biographer like right after Charlotte Bronte died like her biographer I think it was Elizabeth Gaskell used some letters that she had written to Ellen Nessie but cut parts out like it would be like I think of winter evenings that we have spent by the fire and between the sheets or something like that and it she like would cut out like and between the sheet to like make it and it's like what is your evidence that everyone thought this was normal because clearly they did it and that's why they're expurgating it like her husband actually said that she and Ellen should burn their letters like he said they were as dangerous as Lucifer matches and shouldn't be kept and like Ellen was going to publish her own memoir of Charlotte Bronte and Mr. Bronte or I, I don't know what her husband's name was because it wasn't Mr. Bronte <laughs> But her husband, like, sued Alan Nessie for, like, intellectual property, but to, like, keep her from publishing the book. So clearly it wasn't like everyone just thought it was normal at the time, right? Obviously not. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, look, we'll never know because we don't have a sex tape, but I feel confident. I mean, if you read Charlotte Bronte's books, like, they're very queer. Like, I read another one of her books called The Professor, which was bad. Don't read it. But it literally opens and it's like the framing device is that it's like this young man and he's like writing to his best friend from college with whom he had a very romantic friendship. But like, I wish I could remember exactly what it's like. It's so funny because it was like this weird thing where it was like, but not in a gay way, but somehow saying that it wasn't in a gay way made it more gay. (laughs) But like, then it was like, and I feel like it maybe compared them to like some gay Greek couple or something. I don't remember. But then it was like, but then I found that you had left the country. So instead of writing this story to you, I'm just going to write it for the reader and publish it. And it's like, that was the framing device that you went with? Like, okay. But, oh, Thackeray. Okay. So Thackeray had just published Vanity Fair, which I don't know if you've read or seen it, but it's about it. like Becky Sharp is a governess, right, at, for part of the book. And it was like obviously hugely successful. Then Jane Eyre, so I don't know if the edition that you have has the dedication to Thackeray in it, but yeah, here it is. It's the preface to the second edition. She dedicates it to Thackeray and she says a bunch of very embarrassing, like honestly, like like this is not Thackeray's vibe. Like Thackeray is sort of like very light, you know, like, like he would be embarrassed by how earnest this is, you know? But it's like, why have I alluded to this man? I have alluded to him, reader, because I think I see in him an intellect founder and more unique than his contemporaries have yet recognized. Because I regard him as the first social regenerator of the day. Blah, 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 blah. No commentator on his writings has yet found the comparison that suits him. They say he is like Fielding. <laughs> he resembles Fielding as an eagle does a vulture. <laughs> Fielding could stoop on carrion, but Thackeray 
never does. His wit is bright, his humor attractive, but both bear the same relation to his serious genius that the mere lambent sheet lightning playing under the edge of the summer cloud does to the electric death spark hid in its womb. Like, it just, she just goes. And then she's like, finally, I have alluded to Mr. Thackeray because to him, if he will accept the tribute of a total stranger, holy shit, I have dedicated the second edition of Jane Eyre. Oh my God. <laughs> now, everyone decided, and, and also, so the part that she didn't know is that Thackeray's wife was mentally ill. Now, she didn't know that because she wasn't in London and she wasn't part of the London literary scene, but people in London knew it. So when the book came out, everyone decided that she was the governess that he had based Becky Sharp on and in revenge, and they had had an affair. And then in revenge, she had written this takedown of him in Mr. Rochester. And this rumor like lived, like it lived for like years. And like, they did not know each other. They had never met. They did actually meet and become friends later, which was really big of Thackeray. You know what I think? But like 10 years later, I think, like he was on a lecture tour in America. And during the Q&A, someone was like, Mr. Thackeray, is it true the dreadful rumor about you and Caravelle? And he said, all too true, madam. The fruits of that unhappy union were 10 children whom I slew with my own hands. <laughs> I love Thackeray, honestly. Like, I will just say it. I love Thackeray. I would hit that. But Charlotte Bronte did not. <laughs> but everyone thought they did for years and years and years and years. That makes me like Thackeray a thousand times more than I ever did. And just based on like how like earnest and fraught her dedication was, people were like, well, obviously no one would do that unless there was some reciprocation. How intense. Well, and I, I think there was maybe already a rumor that he had based Becky Sharp on some governess that he had slept with or something. And so this sort of like, which again, I'm sure Charlotte Bronte didn't know, right? And then I, I guess like, yeah, it just, it got new legs. Which is actually, I don't know if you've read Georgette Hayer's Sylvester. So the plot, I hate to plug Georgette Hayer because she's an anti-Semite and like she's a horrible person. But I, I do love several of her books, including Sylvester, which has an incredibly ableist part in it, by the way, if anybody is thinking about reading it. But it's one of my favorites of hers. And it's about, so this guy is like, he was a twin. His like twin died and he's now responsible for his twin's like wife or widow and son. The heroine is this like random girl who like they met once at a ball or something and he was like sort of rude to her and she has written a gothic novel and she just like borrowed like his eyebrows. He has these like really distinctive eyebrows. I don't remember what they're like flat and then they turn up at the end. But he has sort of evil eyebrows, right? And she borrowed his eyebrows for the book but the book is about this like innocent orphan and his mother and they're like the wicked uncle is like trying to like steal the this child's money or something and like she of course doesn't know that this is similar to the situation that the guy is in in real life and so then the book comes out and everyone thinks it's like a romana clay about him like and it's like a huge problem for him and she of course just thought it was his eyebrows like did you read cat sebastian's ruin of a rake that's also this trope right everyone thinks this novel is really about you but i just like borrowed like because of things that i didn't know about your personal life that i accidentally mirrored in this book yeah yeah like this totally random piece right which i can only imagine is like one of those sort of like subconscious conscious horrific fears that writers have where it's like i've borrowed this thing from a stranger a person i had drinks with and like i like how would i pick up on that like i can only imagine how like horrifying that would feel 
It's like the disclaimer at the front of Wild Things, where it's like any similarity to any person living or dead is purely coincidental. I remember seeing that at the beginning of Wild Things and being like, oh, so obviously this is based on something and I have to find out what it is. I think that's like a standard disclaimer, but I do always find it very funny when it's like in something where it obviously is based on something or uses real characters. And it's just like you're writing a fictionalized version of this real person and you're going to tell me that any resemblance, but like, whatever. Yeah, it's like real person fic that does that and I'm like what is but it's on the tin (laughs) this is what you're saying gosh wow that's so interesting both because I didn't read the preface because I'm obviously bad at all of the textuality of this text but it's so interesting to think about this relationship that she had with Eleanor Nessie and then like to think about the other women that Jane encounters in this book but also one of the things that Morgan and I have experienced in reading to each other is that like there are moments where like Jane Eyre seems to just like fall to the bottom of the pond and like we are in the presence of Charlotte (laughs) and like those moments feel so distinct in the text and now it's funny to have this more full backstory and to be thinking about like the choices that Charlotte is making on behalf of Jane but also like the moments where she like punches through her own narrative how fascinating this really just does like the layers and layers it just feels like this strange quilt that is constantly punching through itself and I think the fact that there are still new backstories to be learnt about Jane Eyre because like this single narrative that I think is pervasive is that this was based on her obsession with an unrequited love affair with a tutor in Germany. Constant Heiger. Yeah, Heiger. And that Helen Burns was based on her sister who died. Uh, And that's why it's such like a flat character. First of all, I don't agree that Helen Burns is a flat character. I think Helen Burns is a flat character if you see like a movie in Helen but like Helen Burns in the text is not actually that flat. Like she's a weirdo. She's like an intense weirdo. Like yes, she's very religious and yes, she believes in patient suffering and yes, she has tuberculosis, but like she's like messy. She's like gross. Like she's always getting in trouble because she didn't comb her hair. She's like weirdly like, like you can just imagine her just like classic weirdo stuff. Shame the spirits are all around us. Don't you feel that? Like she's not. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Helen Burns gets short shrift. And also they die in bed together holding hands. Like, I'm just putting that out there. Like, I mean, I guess I don't know what Charlotte Bronte happened with Charlotte Bronte and her sister. And like, maybe that was in there too. But I just like... I think that's so true. I mean, I'll agree with you. It's absolutely true. Yes. I mean, they're not even holding hands. Like, Helen opens up her covers because she's in the, like, beloved teacher's room where she can be warm. And then, like, Jane crawls in and puts both her arms around her shoulders as though to keep her soul and her body together. It is such a heartbreak. But also that entire chapter is so devastating because, like, Helen Burns isn't the only girl to go. Like, they're in the middle of an outbreak. And, like, Jane talks about how she's collecting flowers in the forest with, like, her Helen stand-in who's like not as good and like not as good as a person to talk to and like how she whiles away these hours like hanging out with someone she doesn't like as much which now in the context of our conversation makes way more sense sometimes there's a rebound you know like it just they're not as good but mm. they're not as good and she's like collecting all of these flowers to put on the coffins of the students yeah this beautiful lush spring all around her and collecting the flowers oh I honestly have been thinking about this a lot because I've been thinking about, like, I've been reading, well, I became obsessed with the raffle stories again, which are a 
every time I say this, I feel like people think I'm exaggerating and I'm not, but it is like a gay jewel thief, Holmes Watson AU written by Arthur Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. If you're thinking about reading it, it's fantastic, but just be prepared. Like the second story has like a lot of like racism and anti-Semitism in it. And like, I just, I want people to be prepared, but I'm obsessed with them. And, but Raffles, spoiler, in theory dies at the end. I mean, it's, it's easy to like fan wank it because he, you know, the stories are told from Bunny's point of view for publication and so in universe. And so obviously if Raffles faked his death, Bunny wouldn't put it in the paper. So like, whatever, Raffles lives. But I've been thinking about like the, and, and the thing is that like Raffles is partially in some ways, like based on is like too strong, but like there's like sort of shades of Oscar Wilde going on there. And so like part, like between when uh, Horning wrote the first collection of stories, which ends with Bunny and Raffles getting arrested and the second collection of stories was ends with Raffles dying, like Wilde had died. Like when he wrote the first collection of stories, Oscar Wilde had gotten out of prison and was living with Alfred Douglas in Italy. And then like when he wrote the second collection, Oscar Wilde had died of like an illness that had gone worse while he was in jail. And then I was thinking about, there's like a lot of sort of tragic queer love poetry that is about people's actual lovers and boyfriends and girls that died young, right? Like, it's not just like, oh, Tennyson decided to write, like that one of the queer people had to die. It's like Tennyson's boyfriend died and like he wrote this like epic poem about it, right? Like Byron's college boyfriend like died of illness and he wrote these poems about it. Like, and so I was like thinking about like if you were queer, right, in the Victorian era and like education was not co-ed. So like if you were a teen, like you were much more likely to have, one, to have a serious teenage relationship and two to have like an early intense formative relationship where the person died of like some kind of childhood illness or in you know in a war or whatever like obviously if you're a gay man you're much more likely than a straight man to have you know to have somebody die in a war that you're in love with so like at this point there's like no excuse for like oh every queer love story is tragic and somebody dies in the other person's arms at the end right like when I think about it in historical context like I'm trying to kind of think about where that was coming from and and there's a lot of reasons for it I mean obviously also from like a censorship point of view it's valuable because it makes it non-threatening right and so you can be much gayer if like one of them dies at the end but like also I think like they're genuinely like a lot of people had had this formative experience of like someone they loved like dying when they were a child because like they were at school and there was an epidemic or whatever like that's the story that they were telling because that was the story that they had lived and you kind of have to write what you know and I wonder if nowadays whenever we think write what you know we're not pulled into these narratives that we have like good feeling about because we enjoyed reading them and we found pleasure in them even in those kind of like death of a lover stories and we recreate them without interrogating them and I think you know Jane Eyre is a great example of that where for decades the only kind of romance novel you could get was about a governess going to an old house where a widower of some sort of some ilk would fall in love with her or is he a widower or is he a widower (laughs) no he makes claims to being single which i think is or i guess (laughs) to be fair to rochester he never makes any claims to being a widower you know like that's actually a really interesting distinction and i don't know that I've ever thought about it in that stark of a term where his lie of omission isn't that he's a widower which would be like an intentional obfuscation and lie 
die. He knows that Bertha's isn't dead. But like this idea that he's parading himself as single and his great heartbreak was Celine, the French opera singer, and not his failed first marriage. This idea of Bertha's like, I've always considered her erased in the attic. But you're right. That's another level of erasure that I hadn't considered until this moment. It would have almost been better if he had said he was a widower because it's almost better to have been like she lived and then she died to be like she never existed. Exactly. Well, but he could. I mean, there's no there's no reason he would do that because it, once he admitted he was married, then it, it would be a lot easier to figure out that his wife never died. I mean, the whole thing relies on people not knowing he was ever married. So they can't ask what happened to his wife. Like, yeah. Which also is like clarity in terms of narrative and also in terms of Rochester's narrative where he doesn't have to keep his lies straight. It's just like I was never married. Well, they, they don't necessarily know that she's his wife. But meanwhile, like everyone in the house <laughs> yes, like, knows the score. They know there's a mad woman in the attic, um, but they don't. Does Mrs. Fairfax not know that Bertha is the first wife? I mean, do you think she does? I don't. I don't know. I'm teetering on this back and forth. Like every chapter we read, I'm like Fairfax knows so much more than she's telling. She's like trying to protect Jane in this like super mean girl way. She's like putting Jane down and like, like really talking Blanche up. I don't think if she knew that she would behave the way she does about Blanche though, because she exactly doesn't say don't marry Mr. Rochester. She says Mr. Rochester is going to marry this other girl. I don't think that she knows. I think she thinks this is like, I don't know, an ex-girlfriend, a, a cousin. I mean, it's possible. Like, that would be much darker. I find it hard to imagine that Mrs. Fairfax, as portrayed, would be able to keep that to herself. It Once Jane and Mr. Rochester were like, like, when Jane and Mr. Rochester are engaged, she doesn't say don't marry him. She says, don't sleep with him until you're married. I think that's right. Mm, that's a really good point. And I just find it hard to imagine that that would be how she behaved if she knew that he was already married. Also, it seems like she would consider bigamy like a pretty big deal and like maybe would tell on him. You know what I mean? Like, and clearly nobody knows like when, what's his name? Uh, the, 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 the brother, John Mason. Yeah. When he comes, he's not allowed to talk to anyone and the servants clearly don't know who he is. And if they all knew that he was married to the lady, yeah, there'd be no reason not to tell everyone or at least the servants, right? Like that's true. When he needs somebody to watch like, why wouldn't he get one of the servants to, like, blanch the wound or whatever? When I mean, I guess he wanted Jane to do it. He's a weirdo. Like, he's a big weirdo. He's a guy trash. Yeah, you're right. Like, when he tells the story about Celine, what does he say about her? Like, because he does say that he had some kind of great disappointment in his youth, and that's why he's been seeking pleasure, right? But he definitely doesn't present Celine Varens as, like, I was sleeping with her to, like, forget about how I was all... Like, he presents himself as innocent in the story in a way that I feel is unjustified. Totally. I mean, it's unjustified anyway. Something that I was thinking about recently is I was watching the... I still haven't watched the whole thing. I started watching the Timothy Dalton adaptation. Mm. Oh, I've never seen it. And it's like they weirdly soften things in this way that I don't quite understand. Like they, like without it really feeling like anything is even softened, but that yet somehow they like pull the punch and they set it up so that Adele, when he had the affair with Celine Varnes, Adele was already born because I guess they wanted to avoid the question of whether he's her father, which Charlotte Bronte does not. No, and she's like, I mean, he's pretty upfront about it. He uses like a lot of Maury Povich allegedly's. Well, he thinks 
she isn't because he doesn't think she's smart enough, I would say. But Jane kind of clearly thinks that that's bullshit. And also, like, the only leg he has to stand on is finding out that she was unfaithful during their relationship. And up to that point, he had understood her as his child, as his baby, right? And we don't know anything about that guy she met at the opera. The military guy, other than the fact that, like, Rochester is immediately unin love with Celine because he knows too much about that young man. He's like, that guy is a gossip and vapid. And if she says that she's in love with me and is also having this relationship with this guy, I can't be in love with her because it says something about both of them being too stupid for me. Like, he's so arrogant and he's so in love with his own intellectualism. So nasty to Adele. It's like, and, and look, I actually, I love Mr. Rochester. I do. I love him. I'm fond of him. I find a lot of his bullshit charming, but like, he's awful to Adele. Like the way that he talks to her and the way that he talks to Mrs. Fairfax is like disgusting. And part of what I thought about over and over again when I was writing Wife in the Attic was the line at the end, though, because Jane is not innocent either. When she describes at the end, like what happened to Adele, and she says that, like, what does she say? She's like a good English education corrected, like her French defect or something let me find it I thought about that a lot because like the story that I was telling was about this girl and like her father wants her to have this good English education and it's like not quite stated but like he wants her to have this good English education because she's like half Jewish and he doesn't want her to be like like he wants her to be past his English and not be like gross and like you know, and I'm Jewish for anyone listening, this is his own voices. So like, I'm not like, obviously this isn't my, but this is like his attitude. It's like, he doesn't want her to be like coarse and foreign. And like, I love Adele. And like, when you think about her life, it's like her mother died. She's like brought here to this place. And then like, everyone is like, ew, like you're too precociously sexual. Like, ew, like you like dresses. Ew. And it's like, she is like, how old is she? She's like a child. She's like six. Like, it's just like, and then it's like, oh, but it's okay because like a good English education corrected like her character defect. And it's like, I thought a lot about that from like Adele's perspective, like what having an education to correct her front defects, like, must be like and feel like and like what kind of education it might have been nice like I'm sure Jane obviously like loves Adele and gives her like a good education right but like what it might be like for her to have an education that like isn't premised on either that it's they have to like fix her like shitty genes you know well it seems like Jane's affection for Adele is very much about tolerance rather than acceptance it always seems like whenever the in the book is the same way right every time they talk about her it's sort of like and she did this (laughs) you know it doesn't take her seriously even though we know Adele as a character takes herself very seriously uh, when the house party arrives and she knows the protocol and she knows how to behave and And she's so cute. I just like, I love her. She's adorable. And she's so clever. She always knows how to work around rules. Like she's obviously brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think if she was less pretty, Mr. Rochester would be more likely to think she was his, right? Like, yes, yes, yes. He doesn't see himself in her because she's pretty. And it's like, He's so insecure about the way that he looks. And so, like, the way in which, like, Jane posits herself as, like, small and plain and, like, unremarkable. And Rochester sees himself as, like, craggy and, like, unlovely. And, like, you have this bright, joyous, 
confection of a little girl who just is speaking in French and English and really wants everyone to like just be excited about like this present or like this toy or this new word that she learned or like this new thing and she is she's just such a little bright light and they are so fucking I think you're exactly right like the language around Adele is that of tolerance not acceptance and it is like the language of curbing where it's like you can have your pretty dress but you have to have it later right right so one thing we talked about a little bit as we get to the house party and we meet the romantic rival and her mother is that this book really brings back characters from the first 15 chapters to serve the same sort of purpose like her romantic rival is very similar to her cousin who beat her and the romantic rival's mother is very similar to her aunt and I wonder if Helen Burns isn't very similar to Rochester and it's just not something I've noticed before because you know I've seen so many adaptations of Jane and they make Elizabeth Taylor all around us there's a shining angel speaking to me and like yeah like the moment but with like like, dirty fingernails and bad hair (laughs) (laughs) like the moment where he says like that he's like I've seen a bright angel who told me whatever and then Jane is like it was a demon pretending to be an angel or whatever but it's like kind of this I I love what you because it's like kind of the same conversation that she has with Helen Burns right where Helen Burns like don't you see the angels and Jane is like I don't know if I do see the angels though (laughs) yeah and I think also someone who sees value in Jane right who like talks to her and takes her seriously and answers her questions but also someone who seems to be having a totally different conversation with her than she is having with them like that is something that I love about both of those relationships and like because obviously Rochester gets so much more page time but it's like I believe so hard in their deep connection like spiritually and emotionally like I believe there's a a thread between their heart and that they connect almost like there's a string tying his rib yeah (laughs) yeah no kick to bleeding inwardly it's the thread snap yeah and like I believe that you know I believe that like he can shout and like she'll hear his voice spoiler across the the moors or whatever like they really have nothing in common like for me like one of the iconic except for both being goth weirdos because like even though Jane presents herself as very down to earth in this way and like very like no nonsense and like oh Mr. Rochester is being a drama queen and then it's like let's look at your sketchbook for a moment let's look at your sketchbook exactly let's talk about Buick's birds and how your favorite picture was the one with like the skeleton arm (laughs) coming out of the yeah the cormorant and like the the storm it's like we've seen your mind at work Jane (laughs) and there's also this real sense of like Rochester showing up the next day after seeing her drawings with like eyeliner on for the first time (laughs) he knows she accepts him now and I feel like this is such a thing in the sort of Jane Mr. Rochester pairing like one of the moments that I think about all the time is where she's going home to Gateshead later I mean not home but she's going to Gateshead later and she's gone to get borrow the money from Mr. Rochester and he's like making some Mr. Rochester drama queen speech and he's like being really emotional about their parting and he's like oh Jane like and then she's like thinking how long is he going to stand in front of the door because like I kind of got a pack and I feel like that is like such like an iconic moment for them but then at the same time like Jane is defined by these like huge big dramatic emotions and like deep 
like weird thoughts and like her imagination that she hides, right? And she's attracted to people who don't hide that. And like, I see this in fandom all the time where there's like, for example, like Loki in the Marvel universe, who I love, like I'm not... But, like, there's a certain type of, of Loki fan who kind of, like, they, like, become, like, weirdly protective and defensive and can't ever, like, hold Loki accountable for his actions and just want to talk about how, like, Thor bullies him all the time, which, like, I'm not going to say that I'm sure there was, like, some bullying in their relationship as children, but it's, like, also Loki did try to kill him, like, several times. So I kind of feel like, you know, but it's, like, this thing, and, like, like the, kind of the Byronic hero in general, I feel like is defined by this thing where it's, like, you connect to them, like, you as the reader who's, like, into this trope, but also the sort of Jane insert character. It's, like, you connect to them because of what you have in common with them your pain but then you instead of being like I identify with Loki you think I would be such a good girlfriend for Loki because I understand him right and it's like you don't fully connect to like the reason that you love him so much and that you understand him is because of your own deep pain because you get to feel and experience yourself in this imaginary fantasy as the like nurturing understanding calm rock who will like hold him up or hold him down down or whatever it is and like it's like no like that is a part of yourself and I feel like that with Jane too where like she sees herself as like the opposite to Rochester who will like be a good influence on him but in fact what she's attracted to in him is the ways that they're the same and that he allows himself to behave in ways that she represses and suppresses in herself because they're not appropriate or moral or whatever it is like she absolutely would love to like fuck outside of marriage right but like she doesn't and he does but it's like but that passion is what connects them is that they're right like yeah yeah the storm inside and the storm outside and it's interesting though because at the end of chapter 15 we get confronted with this very I mean talking about like externalizing passion and rage we are confronted by this actual fire and Jane saves Mr. Rochester's life right by dousing him in water and I'm thinking about this scene of great tumult right and at the end Jane ends up wet sitting in a chair by herself in the dark cold and just wondering what's going on on the third floor but not wondering enough to do anything about it she like does not get up out of her chair to go look I feel like I never fully understood this scene until I saw the adaptation with Mia Wasikowska. Fassbender? Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, it's all there, but I just, like, didn't put the pieces together with the plot that, like, he has been trying to talk to her about how he feels about her. And, like, not to... I never want to feel like I'm defending Mr. Upster taking his side against Jane because he's trash, but he is trying to connect with her, right? He's like, you've saved my life. You're so amazing. Like, don't leave me. Like, let's hold hands. And she's like I'm cold and I'm going to bed and that is when he brings in Blanche Ingram like he doesn't just randomly bring in Blanche Ingram to be mean he brings in Blanche Ingram because he it's when he realizes that Jane is never going to be willing to like not just be like proper Jane who's cold and has to go to bed like unless he pushes her and he decides to push her in the weirdest way possible by bringing in a weird romantic rival or whatever but like he wants to make her jealous like the whole thing with Blanche is to make 
her jealous because he's not getting anything from her. I want to go back to this thing that you said, because I think this scene is really a perfect sort of illustration where this idea, it's like the thing that you're connecting to in the Rochester and what Jane's connecting to in Rochester is this person who emotions are less inhibited than herself. And like the solve there isn't that like, I want to be like that. It's like, I want to be with you. But the contained version of that, like this good influence, which to me, it's that moment where like Jane sees herself as already worked through her trauma and repression. And so she's already at the point where she can help someone move past their stuff. Like I can do it for you because I've done it for myself, which is to say that she's like alighting all of her own issues. And like we can clearly see that she's in it. And obviously fans are like, you know, we identify with the selves like Rochester because we don't want to face the, you know, storm inside ourselves. And like this feels like such a moment of that where it's like there is a literal fire. There's a literal murder. And he's holding both her hands and like so wants this thing from her. And she's like, I'm cold and wet. Like these are too many feels now. And like I need to go collect myself because like this is too much for me to actually handle and sort through. Yeah. And like, oh my gosh, because like she saved him, right? Like she's comfortable with like, I am putting out your fire to save you. Now you want to talk about my fire? No, 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 there's no fire here. No, 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 no. And it is, it's like this trust thing. I feel like I've been talking about this constantly recently, but there's this concept that like Harriet Lerner, no relation, but she's a therapist and she writes like books and Brene Brown talks about it also, but it's this concept of like over-functioner, under-functioner. It's like a relationship dynamic. And it's also, it's like patterned ways that people respond to stress and people can maybe fall to one or the other, but within a relationship, there tends to be this like one person, like when there's a stressful situation, one person tends to kind of fall apart or become like less effective while the other person becomes more effective. And it's this like vicious cycle because like as the over-functioner in this case, Jane, as she over-functions for Mr. Rochester, not only does Mr. Rochester respond, like it never works. She's never able to actually save it because as she functions more and more for him, he functions less and less, right? Because like she's taking care of it so he doesn't have to. And because he enjoys being taken care of by her and like when he makes a cry for help, she responds, right? But then also it's like as she takes care of him more and more, she becomes less and less able to ask for help because that would make her like a gross, weak person like him, right? I mean, obviously an But you know, it's like, she's like, no, no. I save you. Like, you don't save me. Like, then I would feel weak. And Jane refuses. And I mean, I love that about Jane. Like, but like, Jane doesn't want Mr. Rochester to save her. She wants to save him. And she keeps insisting that she won't think any of the less of him if she saves him. But if she takes one penny from him, now he won't respect her anymore. Right? She's comfortable when like, all of the deep feelings are on the inside, and she's handling them. And she's just giving and not taking. But then it's like that persona also she has like at the end when Sinjin Rivers is like you were not made for passion look at you like you're obviously like you don't love people because like that's what she has shown him right she had shown him like a calm contained person who doesn't have strong emotions because I mean she doesn't trust him right she doesn't feel safe with him but also because that's kind of her default is to just keep it on the inside because I mean obviously she hasn't got great reactions like through her life when she had tantrums and stuff but but then it's like that's what she presents but when people see it and interpret it as her true self she's like horrified like how dare you say that I was not made for passion like I'm super passionate it's like well how would he know that you know but like Mr. Rochester like sees that in her and it's like it's it's beautiful it really is well he's also not the first 
character to do so, right? Bessie, the housekeeper at her aunt's house, sees her as special, right? And she creates this very close relationship with Bessie, this real admiration. And later on with Helen Burns. Miss Temple. And then, yeah. And then with her teacher. And she has such a girl crush on Miss Temple, by the way. Uh, Yeah. Miss Temple's got it figured out, though. Miss Temple's a babe. So beautiful. Her tea cake, you know, and she's like the perfect kind of person who like sets the expectation and then like expects you to meet it. So then you believe that you can do it. Miss Temple's great. (laughs) I think maybe that's the fantasy is that you won't have to manage yourself, right, in order for someone to find value in you in that kind of passionate way right like someone's just going to discover it yes they'll just see it intuitively (laughs) yeah they'll read your mind and I think the part that we also like haven't talked about yet is that Bertha also represents like I mean she's a person and I don't want to but like within the narrative is represents Jane's shadow self right because she is like pure lack of filter lack of restraint like I remember being so annoyed by this when I first like my mom I first read this book when I was like 10 I think my mom read it to me and there's the part where Mr. Rochester is explaining about Bertha like gradually becoming more mentally ill and he claims that she made it worse by like sleeping around and drinking too much and like what does he call her he's like intemperate right she's intemperate and unchaste I think is what he says and like it's like even though Jane defines herself and identifies like so strongly with this like deep passionate core and that's like the whole story of her as a child is that she was like her feelings were too big and nobody could like handle them right but then as an adult she has to take that piece of herself and be like it's this gross monster in the attic right like I don't want to be like that because then Mr. Rochester won't respect me if I'm like that and that was something that I really enjoyed like in my book because she falls in love with the wife Miatic who then it's like because like actually like both Mr. Rochester and the first Mrs. Rochester are these like shadows of Jane and so that means that like maybe she would like the first Mrs. Rochester since she really likes Mr. Rochester and clearly frankly they had a lot in common back in the day right like I'm sure that they partied together he claims that they didn't but I don't believe him I also like I'm sorry the one of the things like when you said intemperate and chase like the first time I read this I was like 16 and I took it to mean that he meant that she was unchaste with him. And like, this was a moment of like him being like, there's a woman that's too sexual even for me. And I like, you know, I've read it a couple more times since then. And I like, I don't know why it struck me that way the first time, because I do think we are to take it to mean that she is like sleeping around, which is part of his whole thing. But like, sometimes I think about that and what that means, where it's like Bertha was too much for Rochester. Yeah. Well, that's the reading Jean Reese takes and why Saragossa see was that Bertha was too hot for someone like Rochester. Well, and it's so funny because the things that he is criticizing her for doing are clearly the exact same things that he then went on to do all across Europe with Celine Varens and various other... She couldn't have been doing worse than that, right? Like, I think he sees that in the drawings that Jane shares with him, right? Not just a passion and an energy, but a darkness to it, right? An interest in the subversive. You know, as much as I think Jane has a type, I think Rochester has a type as well. He describes his wife as looking like Blanche Ingram. And I believe, doesn't he also describe Celine Barron as looking like Blanche Ingram? Am I making this up? Yeah. Tall, dark haired. It feels so true that someone would be like, I have a pattern. And that pattern has caused me nothing but trouble. So how am I going to break the pattern? I know. 
short and mousy. Yes. <laughs> the exact same person. It's like, but actually you've just chosen another like intense weirdo. Yeah. Who's, like too much for you and you can't handle it. Yeah. Absolutely. Like she doesn't drink, right? And I'm sure she's not going to cheat on him. But I mean, like even though he is like so into how extreme and dramatic he is, like he's not ready for Jane. Like he doesn't know how to handle it. When Like when Jane goes full Jane, he's like, what is this? It's like a bird I can't hold in my hand. He seems to like knowing that it's there but not seeing it Jane feels like a good resolution because she is self-repressed he doesn't have to put her in an attic the attic is inside the attic's inside oh no oh that's awful but it's like the thing is like also Mr. Rochester wants to be taken care of right like I'm not saying that I'm sure he like they grow and learn in their relationship or whatever in their marriage but like he actually like if, if Jane was actually like I'm falling apart and I need you. Like, I think that would be very scary for Mr. Rochester. Like, he can give her dresses, right? He knows how to support her financially. But, like, I think he would actually not be confident in his ability to, like, be emotionally supportive if she was really having a tough time. Like, he's comfortable with, like, him putting his head in her lap and she's, like, petting his curls and he's, like, weeping about whatever bullshit. But, like, if that's reversed, like, he's in a false position. Like, he can't even be a dad to his kid. But, like, you know, there's, like, very little really required of him and he can't do it you know I love that idea that Jane would probably really like Bertha because at the end of the day these are like the same three people (laughs) (laughs) but then that was something that I kind of really enjoyed in my book of like doing that like over function or under function or relationship with where the wife is sort of the shadow of the governess but then it's like they have to kind of that's like a relationship issue right that's like a pattern in their relationship and that they both kind of fall into like I think that Charlotte Bronte tends to be really into defining people as like what they are like and like that is all that they can be you know despite all of the rhetoric about people striving and growing and this that and the other like some people are just not uh, great right like Mrs. Fairfax is never gonna be super smart like Charlotte Bronte is very much about like that people are sort of defined by who they are And like, I think that's a very Christian idea, honestly. And like, I really wanted to do a story where it was like, instead of that, it's like, oh, intrinsically this person is this and this is their potential and this but but like people have to make choices and that like doing that dynamic doing those feelings but then like resolving it in a different way of like having to actually think about like how do I behave like can I behave differently like instead of this like well the French defects of my character blah 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 you know that's really interesting I it reminds me of I've been listening to the back catalog of the podcast you're wrong about and they were having this conversation about pickup artists and one of the co-hosts is that like the negging yeah yes yeah yeah yeah. um I think they were actually talking about like the concept of like an alpha male in the animal kingdom which doesn't even really exist but how we're like yes we will adapt that for humans that's a good idea from animals right murder like all of it yeah so he made this observation he's a gay man and he makes this observation that when straight people interact with each other we always seem to be like trying to place something in a hierarchy and we can't be comfortable until not just that we're at the top of the hierarchy but we understand our place in a hierarchy we had a conversation Isabel and I about a different romance novel about two women and one of the things that frustrated me is that in the couple they like organize themselves into a hierarchy and this 
kind of that just seemed to recreate like a patriarchal relationship, not even like a progressive imagining. And what it means to extract a type, like a character who has become a type like Jane out of that hierarchical patriarchal relationship and what nuances or like new understandings we can gain. That's one of the things I love about fan fiction is that it takes an idea and instead of sublimating the self in order to identify with it, it allows you to exist fully. Does that make sense? No? (laughs) I definitely want to hear a little more. I, I don't think I quite got the last part. So like I think in her relationship with Rochester, Jane is doing this like hierarchical evaluation of, you know, of course he doesn't like me, right? I'm small, I'm unattractive. But then also being like, oh, he does need me because I can provide this like emotional stability or what have you. I mean, Rochester is not the boss in their relationship though. Like, let's be clear, like Jane is the boss, right? Like, I don't think Mr. Rochester wants to be in charge of anything. I think he doesn't. I think that's right. But I think the way in which the power hierarchy hierarchy in which they both exist where Jane is interested in only having it subverted to a certain point like she's always the one who's reminding him of class she's always the one who's bringing up money she's always the one who's like this is my wage and this is what I am to you well that's like a different thing right like that's an economic reality like he is her boss Mm -hmm. he would like to forget that Right. He would. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Because it would be convenient for him to forget that there's a power. But that's like a societal power dynamic that cannot be eliminated. Right. Like like they exist in a society where money exists and class exists. And in those hierarchies, she is below him. And he would like to pretend that that's not true so that he doesn't have to be accountable for his behavior or think about how it affects her. He would like to imagine that she's independent and that he can behave however she wants because he doesn't want to think about the fact that like he has to restrain himself because if he asks for something that's too much and she doesn't want to give it to him, he can fire her. But like when you imagine them married, part of the reason I think that he wants to forget that is because like sort of in an interpersonal way, not that you can ever fully divorce that, of course, from the reality of your life. But like Mr. Rochester, I think, would rather be bossed around and not have to make decisions for himself. You know, like like he's comfortable with like, we'll do it how you like it, honey. You know, like I think. Do you think he's okay with being bossed around? And I, I understand I think there might be a part of that that is also like not wanting to be responsible for his choices oh yeah the underfunctioner special yeah yeah exactly I think he doesn't want to be responsible <laughs> for his choices and I think not being responsible for one's choices is an inherently patriarchal trait and <laughs> yeah and I think whenever they're talking about her employment, I think it's a really convenient cipher for talking about their actual relationship as two human beings, right? Even if she was like of his class. Yeah, he wants her to do all the emotional labor and like, so he can be like a man child. And it is sort of defined, like if you think about the sort of man child trope, it is also, you're right, defined by like an economic relationship where you don't have to take care of yourself because you can pay somebody else to do it for you who can't really leave you. Yeah. And a marriage is very much like that. Yeah. And I think would be like that between 
Jane in Rochester. Yeah. Again, in fairness to him, I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying completely. And not that he can't be masterful or like early romances were really fond of this, like he kissed her ruthlessly sort of thing. Like not yeah. that Mr. Rochester can't Breezing do that, right? Like sometimes he does do that sort of thing. But I think a lot of the like early romances, especially like, I mean, Georgia Hare was super into this, but like the early gothics, like the, the heroes who were sort of in the Rochester mold tended to be much bossier. Like, I, I don't know, like maybe am I imagining this? I feel like they were constantly just like manhandling the heroine and refusing to let her do anything and bossing her around and telling her that she was wrong and telling her that like she couldn't do this and she couldn't do that and she belonged to him. And like they were more like weirdly possessive and like toppy like and like dominant in this way. But like I appreciate that Mr. Rochester is kind of like, I just want to wear eyeliner and like dress as a woman and tell fortunes. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Like the Rochester, right, as like this idea, the heroes who are supposedly cast in this Rochester mold, you get this feeling when you're reading Jane Eyre that he's totally in control, right? Inviting Blanche Ingram and being like very over the top affectionate with her. And then that moment in the hallway and also just being able to tell Jane like, no, sit here, wait, don't go to anyone. And then she just sits there in the dark, in the wet wondering why she can't go get anyone right but she does it and so I think maybe the gothics that came after this which was pretty much the only game in town for romance for a while really literalized that sensation of like being beholden to someone because you really really like them and instead of taking that route being like they're beholden to him because he is a beholder yeah and I think that that is part of like for me the like destructive fantasy of like Mr. Rochester that I think a lot of like later books like didn't capture for me right like for me the problematic fantasy is that like I will just be so special that this like it's like like if you like did you either of you watch Gossip Girl like Chuck Bass is the same like he's a Mr. Roger right where it's like he is like a horrible monster but like he's really just a puppy dog who needs somebody to like ruffle his hair and like keep him in line right and I think like that is the fantasy is like oh this guy who seems so scary and powerful I'll just be really like cool and like tough and then like he'll like heal to me this is like also like so like I feel bad that I find this hot because it's so disgusting but Aaron Burr when he was planning his treason thing where he was going to like split off part of the U.S. and take over Mexico and whatever his co-conspirator was this guy James Wilkinson who was a general in the U.S. Army who was also a spy for Spain people tried to tell Thomas Jefferson about how he was a spy for Spain and Thomas Jefferson's like I think he's nice he sends me fossils (laughs) whatever (laughs) Um, but like and people told Aaron Burr like don't do it Wilkinson will be second to nobody like you don't you might think that you're controlling Wilkinson but like you're not and Burr said Wilkinson will be second to me and of course James Wilkinson completely turned on Aaron Burr made him the fall guy for the whole thing came out smelling like roses Aaron Burr was tried for treason didn't get convicted the jury refused to find Aaron Burr not guilty they turned in a verdict of not proven guilty by this evidence and the judge was like that's not a thing like you either have to say not guilty or guilty and they were like this is what we're doing take it or leave it like we all know he's guilty but you haven't made the case like but what a power move on the part of the jury right so good but like Aaron Burr being like 
Wilkinson will be second to me. I feel like that is like the fantasy of Rochester. It's like he hasn't listened to anybody else. He's made an entire mess of his life. He is running wild. He's out there. But like, he'll listen to me. And it's like, we learned from Aaron Burr the fundamental flaw in that, which is like, no, it's like, he's not going to change for you if he's not changing for himself. But the fantasy is so powerful. Absolutely. And I think what both of you are really illuminating for me is that like this dark fantasy of Rochester, I see why he became an archetype in romance specifically, but also I do think it is like a genuine maladaption of this character because I think you're right to say that he is so messy and unsure and insecure and like the things that he does foreign to Jane, like that scene where he's like brought Blanche into the house and like, you know, he's made Jane sit through this whole thing and made Jane watch him flirt with her and then like she like exits basically in tears and then like he's like you know I want to know why you're crying and she's like I'm not going to tell you right now and he's like you know okay or like the moment when she's like I've had enough of whatever you're doing like whenever she puts up a boundary even as like he tests like the tensile strength of it he like lets it stand and I think like the ways in which he tries to show her that she has agency and choice and that he would like to forget the differences in their class and like the differences in their ages which is also a power dynamic you know I think like that is a real earnestness certainly in this reading that I had missed like there is a real tenderness to Rochester that is also very interested in meeting Jane as an equal with agency and consent which feels like especially in the ruthless kissers of that come after is like absented from that archetype yeah that also in the adaptation with Mio Azikowska where they're like in the garden and he's like trying to talk to Jane about like his feelings for her and he's like I want to marry someone and she's like so special and beautiful and pure whatever and he's like trying to talk to her and then she's like I guess we're talking about Blanche Ingram and he's just like what? Like wait what? Why would you think I was talking about Blanche Ingram? I'm obviously talking about you I mean again like he's obviously terrible like but it's like I just am so fond of him because like he genuinely does just like adore Jane and think she's amazing and just like want to like give her the world you know like he just wants to like lay the world at her feet and like have her tell him that he's like a good boy and like yes yeah that he's a nice person and that he deserves to be happy and like pat him on the head and like that is like his dream is for Jane to think he's a good person and like love him this conversation has really rescued him a bit for me or at least rescued my already undying feelings for him Deproblematize them because I think I associate the idea of Rochester so much with this archetype that comes after him and the reason his like masculinity and his like the idea of an assertive man like comes forth in these later gothics that I think think of themselves very much in the same vein as as Jane Eyre is obviously speaking to some kind of deeply held fantasy and you know we read Mistress of Melon for example who has a similar kind of bruising kiss hero definitely that's not preoccupied with like I want you to fall in love with me which I think is Rochester's preoccupation and I feel so much better knowing that that's a misreading <laughs> and being able to I mean I don't want to excuse Rochester he does a lot of no, terrible no, no, things no, but let's I just stop don't right think there. that he's like like his <laughs> 
like his gender presentation is like much less aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like he's less invested in like his masculinity and his manhood and like being the boss of everything and being the alpha. Like he is those things based on his position, but he's not aware enough of or responsible enough for. But like he has those things by virtue of who he is and his status, not because he has like aggressively sought them. And in fact, he finds them burdensome. (laughs) Which, like, again, not that that excuses him or, like, you know, you can't just be like, well, I'm not privileged because I don't like being privileged. Well, I think it's also part of, like, him as an embodied person, right? He's short and unattractive. And so he compensates for that in his social circle by being, like, very gregarious and taking up space with his voice, right? Maybe that's one of his preoccupations with this idea of Jane as a supernatural being is, like, actually, like, a disembodiment from, like, a human, right? Like, I can be something other than my human form, right? There's something more going on on here something of a soul that I can occupy as opposed to (laughs) yes souls touching souls oh my gosh like this is also making me think about like how much body image issues are like obviously present in this text but like also like so much apart like like Byron also had like very serious body image issues he had first of all he had a club foot which he was very very self-conscious about and he like purposely had his clothes fit to hide it as much as possible and he also was really self-conscious about his weight he's sort of like a yo-yo dieter he was naturally kind of chubby and like he was really self-conscious about it and like when he was going to be in London he would like lose weight on purpose like and he ordered his clothes very carefully to play up what he thought were like his good features which were like similar you know similar rushes but like he had like dramatic curly dark hair and like he would wear black to like set off like the color contrast like he like would like carefully present himself to try to like look attractive and obviously he must have been incredibly sexually charismatic based on just like how people responded to him right but like there was this like really fundamental discomfort with it and like the amount of sex that he had also like clearly was not like just fun right like he wasn't just like oh I just love having sex and it's like if you look at like how much it's like this is a sex addiction right this is like you feel okay about yourself when you're having sex so you have sex like and you're making me think about like how much like this sort of desire to be free of the body because you don't feel good about your own body is like part of this book and like Jane too right there's so many images of like Jane's soul as like a bird trapped in like her body and like and then of course at the end their souls commune with each other across the distance like like you're fine and like that's such a part of the Celine Barron story too right is that she told him that she was attracted to him and then it turned out in his mind that she wasn't which probably I mean look it's sex work right you're not dating this woman you know you can't expect her to be like in love with you but clearly like the fact that like she told him she was attracted to him and then it turned out she was like having an affair with someone pretty was like part of why it was so scarring yeah and it wasn't so much that she was having an affair with someone else it's that they were attractive and it's that they talked about him disparagingly and you're right. It's sex work. Like, yeah. who knows how Celine actually felt about him? Because we only get, like, the text of what Rochester felt about himself in that moment. Hiding behind a curtain. Like an absolute goon. <laughs> <laughs> who are about to have sex! 
listening to two very pretty people say that he's not pretty. And yeah, and he's like, I'm not hurt about it. I know. He's like, I'm fine. He's stupid. It was fun. Yeah. And then the thing with Blanche Ingram too, right? Blanche obviously has picked this up about him. Oh, yes. She does that weird bit about how she doesn't care if a guy is hot. She wants him to be like a pirate or something. I don't remember what it is. Yeah. But it's like, clearly she has sensed that this is a, a thing and that she needs to like, yeah. But she misses it, right? It's so embarrassing to read that scene because Blanche Ingram is being so pick me about it. And she's just missed the boat entirely. So what? Pick me. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, she's being the kind of woman who would disparage other women in order to get the affection of a man. In and of itself embarrassing. And then... But let's not pretend Jane doesn't do it, right? Right, right. But she does it on the inside where no one can see. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like other girls. But also watching her miss the boat entirely where it's like, no, Rochester imagines himself to be like a poet and, you know, a stormy sea (laughs) and and not like just some dude. Yeah, she is trying so hard and it's just like, that's like what's so good because like she tries so hard to target it to him, but because she doesn't actually have any connection with him, she can't do it well. Whereas like, not that Jane is, but like, isn't there a thing where Jane thinks to herself, like I would be able to manipulate Mr. Rochester so much better like yeah she's buoyed by Blanche's performance she's like oh yes absolutely she thinks that in that scene and she like basically calls Blanche a hack yeah (laughs) well I've had so much fun I want to go on for another two hours but I don't think anyone wants to listen perhaps they do maybe you do (laughs) if you do give to our Patreon but I want to ask Rose First 15 chapters, lots of setup for Jane Eyre. If you had just read for the first time, like someone came to you and was like, I've just read the first 15 chapters of Jane Eyre. What do I have to look forward to? I am unconvinced by this text. I've come here with a lot of assumptions. What would you say as a fan of the book? Like, what would you say there is to look forward to? Well, I would say if you don't like the first 15 chapters, like you aren't going to like the rest of the book. It's <laughs> good advice. You know, like I'm not a person who's like, okay, you you hated the pilot. You hated the first two seasons. You just need to keep going because it gets really good. I kind of feel like there are a lot of shows that have terrible pilots, right? But it's like, even though the pilots are terrible, I still love the pilot because I love the show. I mean, sometimes it's like, look, just don't watch the first season, right? Like that's a thing. But like, I'm not a fan of telling people they should keep reading something they're not enjoying because like it gets good because I kind of feel like if you don't like the mediocre parts you're probably not gonna like the good parts either but I mean obviously there's the dramatic reveal of how he has a wife in the attic like that's exciting I mean I love the thread connecting them scene like I think that like there's a lot of like really beautiful just feelings that are coming I actually really love the whole part where she like leaves and is like a school teacher and like meets like these people who randomly then turn out to be her long lost family like Jane is a boss and I just like oh my gosh and like you haven't got to the part like the part where she goes back to Gateshead is still coming right yeah I love that part where she like she like finally gets to go back and like she told right didn't she tell Mrs. Reed that she would never come visit her when she was older and that she would never forgive her and then she comes back and she's like well I've come back and I forgive you but it's like her revenge like her revenge is that she's like so like fine now that she like doesn't even need to worry about all that crap from when she was a kid she can come back she can forgive you no skin off her nose she's doing fine and like I just like I love 
love that whole part so much where she's just like, I am above this now. And it's like, I also really loved, <laughs> sorry, I keep talking about like, I love the Mia Wazikowska movie. Like the scene where she like tells Mrs. Reed that she forgives her is like so perfect because she clearly doesn't forgive her at all. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but like giving someone something that they need and that only you can give them, like even if you don't want to get, it's like still satisfying to be like, yes, yes. Yeah, there's so much satisfying revenge and like sticking to your principles coming up and like. Also has like, has the brother, I don't think it's John. I feel like I'm wrong. I keep wanting to say James though, and that's an actor, James Mason. But like, he's still coming, right? He hasn't showed up. Yeah, we even ha- we haven't even gotten Rochester dressing up. Oh my gosh. The bit where he's like, I love him. I'm so <laughs> fond of him. I mean, obviously like I wish that he, sh- he needs to do more maybe to advocate for his sister, but like also clearly he's like, like not like he's not doing well but like he's like she bit me and I'm just like oh baby they also in that Mia Wachkiasa version had a real hunk to play it's nice if you're only through the chapter 15 of that movie keep watching if you're like Ugh, Michael Fassbender <laughs> for some reason I mean he is like I, I enjoy like I've loved many but like there was a thing where he's probably a domestic abuser yes Mm. And like, uh, I just informed Isabeau of this recently. She wasn't aware. Broke my heart. It's a bummer. It's a bummer. It is a real bummer. You're never, but you will pry Magneto from my cold dead hands, but I I haven't watched him in new things, but I have still watched him in things that I saw before that. Another level to that that I don't think people appreciate is that he's a domestic abuser and James McAvoy is his real life friend. And like, no one's problematizing James McAvoy. (laughs) It's like the hits keep coming when you think about it, but no one wants to think about it that way. Everyone wants to keep. I was also very mad because there was going to be like a big spread on a magazine with Chris Brown. And then they made this big statement about how they weren't going to put him on the cover because they don't support domestic violence, which is like, great. And then like two months later, Michael Fassbender was on the cover. And it's like, so not even pretending that this isn't about racism then. Like, I don't. Mm. Or like Gary Oldman. Everyone was really rooting for that guy. <laughs> Ugh. Did he do something new or are we, I'm still just mad about the, the whole anti-Semitism thing. Is there new stuff? Be mad about that forever, but like also a person who hurts his domestic partners. Oh, okay. But like also stuff coming out about Army Hammer. Wait, what did Army Hammer do? Oh no, I'm not ready for this. How, you missed this? Oh no. How did you miss this? It's been all over Twitter. I can't believe I get to tell someone about it. I haven't been on Twitter. That's why. Oh God, what did he do? So one of his former girlfriends came forward and said he was emotionally and psychologically abusive and also released the fact that he has a cannibalism fetish. And then a bunch of women came out and posted screenshots of direct messages from him talking about his cannibalism fetish. And so then it became really kink shamey. But the real problem is... Hold on. I'm going on the record and I'm going to say cannibalism is uncool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's the record. 
But the problem was everybody got obsessed with the fetish and not the idea that he was even in these kink realms, like he was doing things without these women's consent and like pushing their boundaries, not obeying their safe words. So then there was this whole thing where it's like, oh, my God, Army Hammer is a cannibal. And it's like, well, wait, like that isn't the thing that we should be up in arms about. Right. The thing he's actually done. Yeah. Is abuse. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, I can't believe I was the one to tell you. Yeah, dude. Now I can't even hope for the Man from Uncle sequel anymore. I know. That's what I said. I'm so deep into that fandom. Like, that's some of my favorite fan fiction. And, like, they all just, like, I was. The OT3 is real. The Man from Uncle, one of my favorite Ugh. facts about it was that it was designed as, like, Cold War propaganda, the original TV show. And they were like, we're going to make the Westerner tall, blonde, very handsome. And then we're going to have this shrimpy, dark Russian as his sidekick. And then as soon as the show came out, some of the like... Wait, isn't the Russian the blonde one? In the original show? Yeah. Because it's like there's the guy who's like the guy who was in Hustle, who's the who's Napoleon Solo, and he's got like the wider face. And then there's the like little blonde one. He's the Russian, right? I have to look up. But they were very upset when like fan culture started to spring up around it. And they found that everyone found the Russian to be the dreamier of the two. And they had like carefully manufactured it in their minds. Well, I mean, it's really like everybody shipped them together, right? Like, weren't they? I'm pretty sure also, was it Man from Uncle? There was an episode, I think it was Man from Uncle, where William Shatner played like a exterminator who was like asked to help with the sting operation. And like Leonard Nimoy was like a... Ilya was blonde in the original series. Pardon me. I'm glad that I wasn't just like <laughs> completely like losing my memory. But um, I've only watched like this one episode, honestly. I'm pretty sure this was in a Man from Uncle episode. And Leonard Nimoy is like a spy in it. And they literally interact for like a minute at a party. But I think one of them like lights the other one's cigarette or Whoa. something. And like, I don't think they ever met before. But like the sexual chemistry was like absurd for this like literally it was like 30 <laughs> seconds and it was like oh my god like I feel like I'm being drawn into like a maelstrom of like sensual emotion like it was just like incredible and like I think that was why they cast William Shatner in Star Trek because like they already had cast Leonard Nimoy and they were looking for the actor for the captain I think they saw that them on screen together and were like they have great chemistry they do they're electric well plus like lighting each other's cigarettes was very much uh, a primrose path the primrose during, path uh, the code years of film in America. Like no one lights their own cigarette in a Hitchcock film. They're always <laughs> trading between people. I mean, that, like, I think also, like, in the Victorian and Edwardian era, it was, like, a very common thing for, like, gay guys to, like, light, you would like the other person's cigarette. Like, you would light a cigarette, and then you would give it to the other person, right? Because then it had been in your mouth, and that was, like, a very common, like, sort of flirty thing that guys would do. I think it would have been, like, touching cigarette tips would have been the way to do it. Like, this is actually a thing that people did in gay cult, Victorian gay culture. I think we should, like, plan it out. <laughs> Like, touching cigarettes just seems like it would be awkward. Little smushy feeling <laughs> that comes from it. Have you seen The Sweet Smell of Success? No. Oh, it is a noir movie. So Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis were in the mm. movie Trapeze together, which I don't know if you've seen. Speaking of OT3s, no. like, if you, like, an OT3, like, watch 
trapeze. It is life-changing. Okay. Tony Curtis is this, like, optimistic young American acrobat, <laughs> like, comes to Paris. Stop ask, right there. Sold. Like, sold. <laughs> he comes to Paris to ask this, like, embittered, like, former trapeze artist to, like, mentor him because he wants to learn to do the triple, which is, like, you, you right? Like, it's the thing that Dick Grayson used to, that, like, you can, you'd flip three times in the air before. And the guy has, like, like had a bad fall no did he have a fall or did his partner because he's disabled but i think i think he fell i think his partner dropped him i can't remember but he used to right he used to be a flyer but now he's a a catcher oh wow okay because right the trapeze artist so tony curtis comes he wants to be trained Bert lancaster is like no no i'm just an embittered old drunk now like who like sets up the tent or whatever but like tony curtis wears him down and then of course this like sexy woman comes between them but it's like very clearly like they're all in love with anyway it's great it's a great movie they had electric chemistry in it and so i think the you know they wanted to make another movie with them in it and so they made this movie sweet smell of success where burt lancaster is like a gossip columnist like an influential i don't know if gossip columnist is the right word but i think there's like some gossip but then also like he promotes shows and stuff so like tony curtis is a sort of like two-bit theater agent who's like trying to get his clients into this like guy's column and doing sort of dirty work for him in exchange right and like burt lancaster Lancaster is this like power broker in like the sort of I don't know where I don't know if they're in Hollywood or New York but like wherever they are he's like sort of the power broker in like the theater but there's this scene where to humiliate Tony Curtis and get him back in line for some reason he like he talks like he says something really hurtful and humiliating about him to somebody and then he's like makes him light his cigarette he says this like really nasty thing Tony Curtis and then he's like match me Sydney. and he like and it's like it's good match me Sydney that's great <laughs> that's amazing so many things to look forward to. All the chapters in Jane Eyre and now the sweet smell of success and the trapeze. Like, woo! Gonna have a good February. <laughs> Rose, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or check out your work? So my website is roselearner.com and that's R-O-S-E-L-E-R-N-E-R. I'm on Twitter at Rose Lerner. I also have a Patreon, which is also Rose Lerner. And I also do freelance editing, research assistance, book doctoring, brainstorming sessions, that kind of thing. And that's at rosedoesthereresearch.com. Oh, wow. What a great service. Fabulous. I try. And your new book is coming out as an Audible original, first thing, right? Is it going to be like a book you can read? with words on a page <laughs> so it's gonna yeah so it's gonna be an exclusive to audio and to audible for about six months so this fall it will be out as an ebook um and a print book but i mean if you you know if some people just like can't do audio i get that but like you're, you're listening to a podcast fine. if you're listening to this so i would encourage you to try it i mean i i haven't listened to it yet either because ah! i haven't quite finished the final files i'm like so excited i can't oh wait my gosh. but i had i mean the audition was phenomenal i had a couple of really good conversations with the narrator I felt like she really like we were really like artistically like in sync and that she was like uh, got what I was trying to do and so I'm really excited to listen to it and I think also like like creepy stuff is like fun like it's kind of I mean I don't know creep but like it's like kind of spooky right kind of suspenseful like I think that works really well in an audio format I mean it'll be like I don't I'm not sure when this is going to drop but it'll be in the audible store it's the wife of the attic Rose Lerner I don't have a link but there is like if you go to my website you'll 
find it right away. Yeah, The Wife in the Attic, Rye Bay number one. So is it the start of a series? It's at least going to be two. Like I've I'm, I'm just started working on the sequel, which is about you'll meet her best friend and ex-girlfriend in this book. And so that character then also gets like a job part through the book as a lady's companion. So it's going to be about that situation. It's going to be book two. Oh my gosh. Oh. Okay, so much to look forward to. Thank Rose, you. thank you so much for joining us and talking about, <laughs> sort of talking about the first 15 chapters of Jane Eyre. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much Such fun. a pleasure. We appreciate you and we hope everyone is out and gets your book. Absolutely. Uh, with that, I think I would ask you uh, listeners just to loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah.